Amen. That's a blessing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let me say a word about this, uh, this uh, little book that uh, Dr. Marriott was talking about, Wind in the Sails. It's actually uh, a presentation that I have been making as part of Neighborhood Bible Time Evangelist Summer Training for literally decades. The executive director of Neighborhood Bible Time asked if I couldn't put it in print so that our summer evangelists could have that presentation to take with them after the summer was over. And so I transcribed the presentation and we published it in book form. I remember when the first case of this new publication came to our church. The book is about 40 pages long which may say something about the depth of my intellect. I'm not sure, but it's about 40 pages long. And I'll appreciate so much the encouragement of my assistant pastor, Gib Brown, when the box arrived with, this, uh, with these uh, books in it. He opened it up and he pulled one out and he held it up sideways. You could see how thin it was. And he goes, you know, someone might read this. And so I said, well, that's, that's encouraging. Uh, But if you do think that that book might be a help to you, uh, please do see me. If you don't have a copy or Brother Herbster doesn't have enough to distribute, I will be more than happy to get a copy for you. As a preacher, of course, when you approach, uh, whether it's a Sunday pulpit or a Bible conference pulpit or a revival meeting such as this, of course, you think and you pray for the mind and the will of God. You have to be careful not to be tempted to preach the message that you would like to preach. You know, some preachers have their, we used to call them your sugar stick. Boy, that one really preaches. When I preach that message, I'm a spellbinder and a stem winder, and everybody likes to hear it. It's got great illustrations, and it really preaches. But you have to be cautious, because what you need to do is you need to pray and you need to consider not what do you want to preach, but what needs to be preached. Not what would you like to preach, but what will help those to whom you're preaching. And with that in mind, I want to invite you this evening to open your Bibles and look with me to Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read two verses, Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, though in our message we'll be looking really at the entire chapter. Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 say, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, That I do. I want to repeat that phrase at the end of verse 18, which says again, How to perform that which is good, I find not. Some time ago, I read a national survey that had been conducted over a span of five years. This survey revealed that 68% of professing Christian men view pornography. I was speaking at a conference recently and we had a workshop about preaching, the declining number of young men who are answering the call to preach and the declining size of ministerial classes in fundamental schools. And in this workshop there were several younger preachers. 
And quite frankly, I wasn't leading this workshop to teach. I was leading this workshop trying to glean some information. I wanted to hear from these young men what they thought might be part of the problem. And it was very clear, at least to these young men, there were several problems, but to them the number one problem was young men having a wounded or stained conscience and deeming themselves thereby unfit for ministry. These men, most they said because of the pornography issue, deemed themselves unqualified to preach. There are a lot of observations that can be made about my learning and about this survey that I just cited. Number one, pornography is readily accessible today in a way that it once was not. And so, of course, Christians must be cautious, and we must protect ourselves against this near-ubiquitous temptation. When I was a young man, I did not have a pornography problem. I don't have one today either, just so you know. But when I was a young man, I did not have a pornography problem. Well, you say, well, you must have been an outstanding young man. You had good standards. You had good character. I can tell you exactly why I did not have a pornography problem when I was a teenager. There was no pornography to have a problem with. Pornography was found almost exclusively behind the counter in a liquor store in a red light district. But now, if you've got a smartphone, if you've got a tablet, if you've got access to the internet, and who doesn't, it's readily accessible. It's universally available. This temptation is all around us, and we must be cautious. The second thing I think that we can conclude is that is that the damage caused by this to marital relationships, personal relationships, and of course our own individual relationship with God is enormous. And based on that survey that I cited at the beginning, about 68% of professing Christian men viewing pornography, I think we can conclude, reasonably so, that there are many, many men who profess faith in Christ who are struggling, struggling unsuccessfully with temptation, with frustration, with guilt, and with shame. And it's this last point that I want to address tonight. It's the struggle the unsuccessful struggle against temptation. I believe that it is commonplace for a Christian to want to do what is right, to determine in his heart and his mind that he's going to do what is right, that he's not going to do what he knows is wrong, and then he does what's wrong anyway. I think it's commonplace. I think it's the very thing that the Apostle Paul addressed here in Romans chapter 7. Verse 15, he says, That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Again, verse 19, The good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now I know that there's a difference of opinion among Bible students and Bible scholars. Some suggest 
that this was an experience that Paul is referring to that took place in his life before he trusted Christ. But I don't think so. I believe that this is something that the Apostle Paul dealt with, not pornography, but temptation. And sometimes, sometimes, he failed in resisting temptation. The Apostle Paul was not sinless like our Savior. I think what he was communicating here in Romans chapter 7 is something that is commonplace in the Christian experience. Sometimes we wrestle with temptation, and I say we wrestle, we wrestle unsuccessfully. Temptation has its boot heel on our neck, and our conscience afflicts us. Like righteous lot, we vex our souls because we find ourselves doing and seeing and saying what we know we shouldn't do, see, or say. You hear this evening, you say, well... Uh, This message is not about me because I don't have a pornography problem. Let me say this, first and foremost, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But it may be that your temptation and your weakness and your struggle is not with sexual lust. Maybe your temptation, your weakness, your struggle is with envy, jealousy, resentment bitterness, an unforgiving spirit. Maybe you struggle with laziness and sloth. Maybe you struggle with temper, losing your temper, anger. You don't want it to happen. You determine you're not going to lose your temper. You're going to control your temper. You're not going to give way to anger. And then, and then you blow up again. And you say what you shouldn't have said. And you do what you wish you didn't do. You did what you said you weren't going to do, but you did it anyway. Why? Why does this happen? Is this this just the way we have to live as Christians? The answer to that question is no. No, it's not. The book of Romans is about salvation, and what a wonderful book it is. Chapters 1 through 5 tell us that God has saved us from the guilt of our sin and the punishment of our sin through Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and there is therefore now no condemnation. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for his substitutionary death on the cross. And thank God for Jesus Christ's forgiveness and his imputed righteousness. Someday I will stand in the presence of the Lord, robed in righteousness, not mine own. I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did for me. And I have been made through faith in him by the grace of God, accepted and acceptable in the beloved one. God receives me as he receives his own dear son, Jesus Christ, because I'm in Christ. I'm in union with Christ. My faith is in Christ. I'm justified. That's what Romans chapters 1 through 5 tell us. Then we come to Romans chapter 6. Romans 1 through 5 is about salvation, particularly justification. But in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, begins to address another part of salvation, and that is 
sanctification, our separation from sin unto God, our improvement in the likeness of Christ. Sanctification liberates us from service to sin and it allows us to walk in newness of life. How do we do this? Chapter 6 talks about knowing, appreciating your position in Jesus Christ. It talks about reckoning by faith, realizing who you are in Christ, realizing that God has given you all that you have in Christ, knowing, reckoning, yielding, and serving. That's the way of salvation. That's the way of sanctification. All through faith. If I were to give you a title to chapter 6 of Romans, it would be the right way of sanctification or God's way of sanctification. How can I be like Christ? How can I grow in grace? How can I live a life of victory and purity and holiness and righteousness and love? Chapter 6 tells us God's way of sanctification. Chapter 7, if I was to give chapter 7 a title, I would call it the wrong way of sanctification. This is how not to be sanctified. And I believe this tonight. I believe this evening that many of you students, you struggle with sin unsuccessfully because you pursue the wrong way of sanctification. Saved by grace through faith, That's how I'm saved. That's how I'm justified. That's how I'm forgiven. That's how I'm reconciled to God. By grace, through faith. How are you sanctified? How are you sanctified? And whether you would verbalize it this way, whether you would boil it down to this kind of concise wording, some of you attempt to be sanctified by keeping the law or keeping a list of rules. How are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We cannot be saved by the works of the law. Listen to me. You're not saved by the works of the law. You're not justified by the works of the law. You are not, child of God, sanctified by the works of the law either. And that is why you're frustrated. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 1. It says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. And Paul gives an illustration, verse 2, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. I was preaching years ago. I was probably 26 or 27 years old. I was preaching in Decatur, Alabama. And there was a member of that church whose name was Dr. Monroe Parker. Now, Dr. Parker was to me a giant of the faith. He was a great preacher. He was for a time the president of Pillsbury Baptist Bible College. He was for a time the director of the ministerial class at Bob Jones University. He was the director of Baptist World Mission. He was a great evangelist. He was a great preacher. But he happened to be home the week that I was preaching revival meetings at this church in Decatur, Alabama, when I was about 26, 27 years of age. And he and his wife, Ruby, came every night, sat down in the front row, and listened to me preach. It was a very humbling experience. 
And how encouraging he was. Dr. Parker would sit down there. Amen, brother. Amen. Amen, brother. I mean, no disrespect. Dr. Parker reminded me of, a, of the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz, sanctified. He was a great man. He and his wife, Ruby, invited me out to lunch. My wife was not with me on this occasion. And, of course, Mrs. Parker, she was interested in whether I was married. Did I have any children? I told her, yes, I was married. I told her I, I, I met my wife at college. I said, college is a good place to meet a wife. And Dr. Parker said, I know, I met three of them there. <laughs> and he did. Dr. Parker had, had a wife, a dear lady, who was tragically killed in an accident by a drunk driver. His second wife died of cancer, and his third wife was, was his wife then, Ruby Parker, sweet, dear lady, wonderful, wonderful saint of God. He had three wives. Well, let me ask you a question. Is there, is there a problem with this? Dr. Parker, did he disobey God? Did he violate the Scripture? Did he do something immoral, unethical, wrong? Because he had three wives? No, he didn't do anything wrong. Had a lady come to my office about a year ago. Her husband's name was Brian. She was very conflicted. She said, Roger has asked me out on a date. What do you think I should do? I said, I, I like Roger. I think you ought to go out with him. Pastor, how could you say that? Brian died of cancer two years prior. And she went out on a date with Roger, and in fact, not too long ago, she married him. Is there a problem with this? Of course there's not a problem with this. Why? Because death ends the legal obligation. Not too long ago was tax season. I don't like tax season. I pay my taxes quarterly. What did I do this morning? I stepped out from behind the pulpit. This is free. This isn't preaching. Every American ought to have to pay their taxes quarterly. They'd be throwing tea in the harbor. I'm telling you right now. But I pay my taxes. I pay my taxes quarterly. I write a nice big check to the state of Michigan every, every quarter. I write a big check to the, to the federal government every quarter. And even though I wrote these big checks four times the year, I did my taxes and my accountant told me that I needed to write another big check to the government. I was not pleased. But I paid it. Why did I pay it? Well, I paid it because I owed it. And if I didn't pay it, what would happen? Well, fines, penalties. There are, there are people in prison tonight because they didn't pay their taxes. Now, I'm not trying to be ridiculous. But let me tell you something, young people. There are no dead people in prison tonight because they refuse to pay taxes. I, I, there's other things to look forward to, seeing the Lord going to heaven, being reunited to the saints. But folks, when we, got, when we die, no more taxes. Amen? Some of you say, I'm not so sure about it. You wait till you get your first job with withholding. If you've never had that, then you'll understand what post-traumatic stress is all about. <laughs> but dead people don't have to pay taxes. Why? Because dead people are not under the law. They have no obligation to the law. Now, we as Christians, we stand united with Christ in his death. We, we are identified with him. This is not that complicated. We understand this when it comes to the matter of salvation. Jesus died for me, and I derive benefit from his death. Because of his death, 
I live. Because he suffered, I won't be punished by God. Because he was condemned, I won't be condemned. Because of my identification with Christ, I am free from the penalty of the law. I'm saved. We understand that. But child of God, it's not just justification that comes about as a result of our identification with Christ. Our identification with Christ is the way that we live free from sin and walk in newness of life. Jesus Christ died and was raised again. And because of our identification with him, again, Romans chapter 6 tells us we can walk in newness of life. You don't have to be bullied by sin. You don't have to be oppressed by sin. You don't have to have temptations boot heel on your neck and live with frustration because you're determined to do right and you do wrong all the time in spite of your determination. You don't have to live that way because of Christ. Because you have an identification with him. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to be sanctified in a way that's different than the way you got saved. You got saved, you recognize, I can't earn my salvation keeping rules and laws and obeying commandments. That won't save me. I have to trust Christ. How can I be sanctified? How can I live a holy life? How can I live free from sin? How can I have victory over temptation? Listen to me, same way you got saved. Faith in Christ, the grace of God. Chapter 7, verses 7 and following tell us about the function of the law, and the function of the law is not to sanctify you. Verses, let's see here, for those of you who want an outline, verses 1 through 6 give us the freedom from the law. Verses 7 through 13 give us the function of the law. What does it say? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. I had not known lust or covetousness except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. When I was in what we called at the time junior high school, now it's middle school, when I was in junior high school, we had shop class. Well, if you, don't, if you didn't have shop class, you missed out. I like shop class, and I have all my fingers, but I like shop class. I remember going into shop class, third or fourth day, they showed us a film. I was not the best student. My favorite day in school was always film day. When I came into school and I saw that they had that reel-to-reel projector, that's, that's like the, the record player and the Manual transmission and the typewriter. Yeah, that's, that's from long ago. But they'd have this reel-to-reel projector. They're going to show us a film in class. You know what that told me? Hey, hey, entertainment, tune out, daydream, draw pictures, read comic books, etc. I was not a good student. Don't do that here, by the way. Don't do that here. But I remember I paid attention to the film they were showing in shop class because it was a Walt Disney cartoon. This is going to be good. It was called Primitive Pete. It was about a caveman. But this was an instructional video. This animation was supposed to teach us something about shop class. Primitive Pete was a caveman who didn't know how to use tools. He would take a pipe wrench and he would use it for a hammer. He would take a screwdriver and he would use it as a chisel. And he would destroy his tools. And at the same time, his jobs were terrible. 
And the whole point of the film was there's a certain use for each tool when you use the tool that is designed for, for the specific job for which it's designed, then you have a good product. God has given us, if you can call it that, the tool of the law. It has a specific purpose. What is the purpose of the law? I could tell you the purpose of the law is not to save you. The purpose of the law is not to sanctify you. The purpose of the law is to identify and clarify and to define sin. Romans, same book, chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's kind of like the area of medicine. There's, there's the diagnosis, and then there's the prescription. There's the diagnosis, and then the application of the cure. When I was about eight or nine years old, my brother and I were visiting some friends in upstate New York when we were with our, my dad on his farm, and I don't know why we thought this. We were, we were indestructible. We, we were climbing up a wood pile at the back of a garage, walking over the crest of the roof of the garage, and then leaping off the front. And you know, on the way down, it's great. The wind is whistling past your ears. And we thought that was great. My brother jumped off the garage. Some of the other kids jumped off the garage. I jumped off the garage. We hit the ground and we rolled. That was tremendous. I'm going to do that again. Ran around the back of the garage, climbed up that wood pile, back in the roof of the garage. I jumped off the garage. The wind was whistling by my ears. I'm Superman. And the second time I hit the ground, I found out I wasn't Superman. I felt it snap. Oh! And I laid on the ground and I held my foot and I cried. Oh, my foot, my foot. Oh, it hurt so bad. My father came. My father's a good man. He's a kind man. He's a compassionate man. He's a wise man. He came. He said, quit crying. Rub it. You'll be fine. (laughs) And we left. I got up the next morning. I was hobbling around the house. Oh, my foot. Does your foot still hurt? Yeah, that'll get better. About the third day, I was moaning and crying. My dad said, does your foot still hurt? I said, yes. He said, well, let's go see the doctor. Now, this was several years ago, and we went to see an old country doctor. I say an old country doctor. He was a German. I thought he was a Nazi, but he was a German. (laughs) He had a thick German accent. His name was Dr. Hans Schein. And this is, I mean no disrespect, but I remember he got me up on his examinating, uh, examination table and he said, which, which, which foot hurts, young man? And I said, my right one. And he, and, he, and he grabbed it and gave it a little squeeze. That's when my left foot kicked him right in the shoulder really hard. <laughs> Ow! Oh, the boy has a pain. <laughs> he, he knew my father somehow, called him, called him William. Williams, a boy has a pain. We shall take the x-ray. So they put my foot under the x-ray. And you could see it. There was a, there was a fracture. There was a line in the x-ray. And I rem- I'll always remember Dr. Shine. I'll never forget. William, the boy has a broken foot. <laughs> I told you. And they wrapped it up. And thank God it got better. 
What did Dr. Shine do to heal my foot? The truth of the matter is he didn't do anything. He just wrapped it up and said, give it time. You'll get better. In, I think it was the month of April 2015, my mother went to the doctor and she underwent a CAT scan. I've written it out here, computed tomography scan. If I didn't write it out, I wouldn't remember it. This is, of course, a way of using x-rays to give a detailed picture of internal organs. They were studying my mother's pancreas. They determined that she had stage 4 pancreatic cancer. The x-ray was accurate. It was precise. And in December of 2015, my mother passed away from pancreatic cancer. So the x-ray machine failed. The x-ray machine didn't work. No, the x-ray machine worked just fine. It was very exact. It was very precise. It was very discerning. It identified exactly what the problem was. What did the x-ray machine do to cure my mother's cancer? And And the answer is absolutely nothing. There's nothing wrong with the law. The Bible tells us the law is just and the law is good. What does the law do to eradicate your sin? And the answer is absolutely nothing. By the law is the knowledge of sin. It reveals our sin. It identifies our sin. But it doesn't forgive our sin. It doesn't take away our sin. It simply shows us our sin. If you read the Ten Commandments, If you're honest and you're humble, when you read the Ten Commandments, there's only one reasonable conclusion that an honest and humble person can come to. Do you know what conclusion I come to when I read the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal. Guilty. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I've I've done that. I'm guilty. Honor thy father and thy mother. I've broken that commandment. If you read through the commandments of Scripture, not that it's the Ten Commandments, but all the commandments in God's Word, there's only one reasonable, honest conclusion that you can come to. If my effort is to be made right with God through keeping His commandments, well, that effort is, is a complete catastrophe. It's a total failure because I haven't kept His commandments. I'm guilty. That's what the law does. It defines, it identifies, it clarifies, it reveals. Look at verse 7, again, of Romans chapter 7. Paul said, I looked into the, into the law of God, and I read the tenth of the tenth commandments. Thou shalt not covet. And what does the Bible say? It, it wrought in me, verse 8, all manner of concupiscence or coveting. When I read that, I was guilty. The law didn't create sin in me, but it does stimulate something in me. You ever walk down the street and there's a big sign, your neighbors have maybe put string around their yard and they've got a sign, stay off the grass. Now, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in stepping on my neighbor's lawn, but uh, you know, ah, ah, what are you going to do about that, yeah. 
I had no inclination to step on the grass until I saw the sign that said what? Keep off the grass, and it awakened something in me. It provoked me. It's not nothing, nothing about the rule. It's something about me. You've heard the expression, rules make rebels. That's really not true. The, the truth is, rules reveal rebels. It shows us what we are. And look what it says in verse 9. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I, I died. Instead of obeying the law, being rewarded with life, Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes, my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I can't live in them by keeping the commandments because I haven't kept the commandments. I'm condemned. I die. And so again, what does the law do? It diagnoses our condition. It reveals the rebelliousness of our heart. And it shows how guilty I am before God. The law doesn't save. Child of God, it can't save you. And just as it can't save you, it can't sanctify you either. Again, I'm not saying that the law of God has no value. It absolutely has value. It has value in helping us to understand the holiness of God. It helps us to understand the principles of God. And yes, it helps us to understand our sinfulness, but it doesn't change me. Thou shalt not steal. That's what God said. Okay, I'm not going to steal anymore. But then there was that time when I saw something I wanted and I knew I shouldn't take it, and I did. I I know I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't steal answers off my neighbor's page in class, but I wasn't sure about number five. And, and I know my, my neighbor here gets good grades, and so I peeked and I stole her work. I took her answer. I knew it was wrong. I did it. We started by talking about this pornography issue. Do we need to preach about morality and purity? Certainly. Certainly we do. But we know already, I doubt there's any of you that don't know that Jesus said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. You know that. You know it's wrong. The problem is not that you don't know that it's wrong. You know it's wrong, and you do it anyway. So Paul says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. Paul's here not trying to shed the responsibility for his sin as if the law had created it or he had no control over it, but the law revealed it to him, and it reveals it to each of us. And it reveals to us that apart from the intervening grace of God, we are the slaves of sin. So verse 15, that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, what I hate, that do I. There's the conflict. Because the law is good, verse 6, the law is 16, rather, the law is good, but I fail to keep it. Why do I fail to keep it? Because of sin that dwells in me, verse 17. The law is good. I'm not good. And the law doesn't change that fact. The law is good, 
but I'm not good. And reading the law, reading God's commands, reading God's principles, reading about the restrictions in the Bible, determining that I'm going to obey, that doesn't change me. I'm still a sinner. And so what does Paul say? Can we skip ahead to verse 24? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here's what I believe. I believe that there are a great many Christians who are trying to be sanctified by keeping the law. You're not trying to be justified by keeping the law, but you're trying to be sanctified by keeping the law. I'm saved by trusting Christ, but I'm going to be a good Christian, and I'm going to have a life of, of, of godliness by rigid self-discipline. And then you fail. You falter. And your conscience convicts you. And you're frustrated. Verse 18, how to perform that which is good I find not. O wretched man that I am. What's the answer? What's the solution? I'm not trying to be simplistic this evening, but I want to be simple. Do you know what the answer is? You become sanctified, young person, by the same way you got saved. Faith in Jesus Christ. You're sanctified by the same way that you're saved, by the grace of God. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ the Lord. There's the change. Back in chapter 6, reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. Yield yourself by faith to God. Trust in Him. And He will work a change in your heart so that you can then walk in newness of life. It's not self-discipline. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not just gritting your teeth. And I just need a little more determination. I need the grace of God. I need, I need His strength and His help to do for me and to do in me, which I cannot do for myself. Oh God, change me. I trust in You. I depend upon You. I trust in Christ. Die to self. By faith, see yourself identified with Jesus Christ and walk in newness of life. That's the way to do it. That's the way of sanctification. This comes from the Grand Rapids Press in Michigan. Friday, March 3rd, a Ford Fiesta driven by a man named Mark Witzeman, 59 years of age, entered in the southbound lane on US 131 going north. At about 4.40 p.m., crashing into a Nissan pickup truck head-on. The Portage resident and his mother, 88-year-old Elma Witzeman, were killed in the crash. Kalamazoo resident Victoria Mitchell, 57 years of age, who was riding in the back seat of the extended cab truck, was also killed. The reason I took note of that is Less than a week earlier, Tuesday, February 28th, the woman police say was driving the wrong way on US 131, caused a double fatal collision. Police say 25-year-old Jane Rachel Slotsimo was driving south in the northbound lanes at 9.50 p.m. Five days before, Thursday, February 23rd, Ford Edge, driven by 27-year-old Jonathan Yarrington, was going the wrong way. 
on US 131. And people died in the crash. How did this happen? All these people died, all this mayhem, all this traffic fatality. How did it happen? Well, well, they're going the wrong way. The reason that you're struggling and struggling so unsuccessfully with your sin is that you're going the wrong way. You're saved by grace through faith. And child of God, you're sanctified the same way. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're not sanctified by keeping the law. The law is just. The law is holy. The law is good. It has its purpose. It has its value. But it doesn't sanctify. You need to trust Jesus Christ and rest in His grace. Reckon. Yield. Know. Believe. And by the grace of God, serve. That's the right way. Trying to just keep a list of rules. Child of God, that's the wrong way. I believe tonight, based on statistics, and I don't know most of you. In fact, I only know just a few of you. But I'm going to say this. I don't think. I am quite positive tonight. There are several young people in this room And this is all about you. Your conscience is tortured because of this struggle that you're having, perpetually stumbling, falling back into the sin. God does not intend that you should live that way. You can walk in newness of life. You can have victory over this thing by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Can we bow our heads? How do you give an invitation about a thing like this? And we're not talking, and we haven't talked tonight exclusively about pornography. Your sin may be something else altogether. But there's great shame in this. I preached this message at my church and I gave an invitation. Nobody came forward. The next day I got an email from a man in my church. Pastor, I need to see you today. I can't go on like this. I preached this message in my church. I received a phone call from a man in my church. Pastor, help me. Your message, God used it. He's convicted my heart. I've got to change this cycle of defeat. I can't live with my conscience like this. It's tearing my marriage apart. So I'm not entirely sure as I stand up here what we're going to do about this, but I believe this. I believe that if you have been vexing your soul by this constant cycle of defeat and guilt and confession and determination and then temptation and defeat and guilt and frustration and shame and then confession and determination and... Once again, defeat and shame and guilt. Young people, it doesn't have to be like that, and it's time for change. God's grace is sufficient for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to pass this over to our university president. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to let Dr. Marriott close this service.
in whatever way he deems is wisest. But let me say this, when this service is dismissed, that doesn't mean the invitation's over. Whatever, whatever happens tonight, if you need to send an email, you need to send a text, you need to make a phone call, you need to go see a, a dorm supervisor, a faculty member, do it and get the help because God's grace is sufficient. It doesn't have to be this way, young people. God has something better for you. He wants you to walk in newness of life. I pray, Heavenly Father, thanks for your grace. Thank you that Jesus Christ grants us victory over sin, not just victory in the sense that our sins are forgiven and eternal life is ours, but your determination is to make us like Christ, who knew no sin, who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth, who was holy, harmless, separate from sinners. Make us like Christ. Help us, Heavenly Father, to enjoy what you have given us in Christ, and that is victory over sin. Sanctify us. And for those young people tonight who are in this room who've been struggling with this, who vex their righteous souls, God, I pray that you would give them lasting victory over sin by thy grace through faith in Jesus Christ.